0: So, Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. You're all here. That's good. Uh, we're back into the book of Matthew, walking through Matthew. It's been uh, all over the place lately, but um, we're walking with Jesus right now uh, to the cross. And uh, I hope to attempt to put yourself in his sandals, if I could put it that way. And uh, that in the next few weeks, we try to experience what he Is experienced to some degree. This is Matthew chapter 21. It's his final week of his life. Every evening, Jesus walks back to um, over the Mount of Olives, and he goes and he stays in this little town called Bethany. Every morning, he gets up. He retraces his steps back to Jerusalem. He goes up into the temple uh, to teach and to debate the Jewish religious experts, uh, which he would have taken uh, this, sorry, this debate would have taken place in front of hundreds of people watching because they had all gathered uh, for the Passover festival. As a matter of fact, some people would have said it would have been thousands of people there. But uh, the, the fact of the matter is there's a lot of ears and Jesus has a lot of people's attention. Now, I have to be honest. When we're looking at Matthew chapter 21, there's some really hard teachings of Jesus. And as we get into the last week of his life, we're going to see that the teachings that Jesus uh, is expounding on hit home really hard. Which means I'm giving you a warning. These are the hard teachings of Jesus. It's sometimes even hard for us to take. So prepare yourself. Nobody can walk into the temple and drive out Uh, The money changers without stirring up a whole lot of issues in Jerusalem, but Jesus does that. He uncovered the wickedness and the sinfulness uh, of those who claim to be serving God, but there was really no evidence of God or evidence of God's fruit in their life. That's what he's been getting at. The rest of the chapter deals with this matter of producing fruit and that as believers, there should be evidence of our faith that others can see. There are four sections in chapter 21. Pastor Jordan McClellan covered the first three last week. Uh, The first was the episode of the cursing of the fig tree because uh, Jesus cursed this tree because there was no fruit on it and we kind of look at that and he expounded on it really good, Jordan that is. Um, But Matthew when he's writing about it he says, uh, that Jesus found only leaves. And so as readers, if you knew what was going on in the Middle East at that time, if a fig tree had leaves, it should have fruit. So, so the, the leaves on the fig tree was advertising that there, there should have been figs there as well, but it was false advertisement, and Jesus dealt with that. The point of the story is, is that the presence of the leaves indicates that there should be fruit. And when he goes to find the fruit and he can't, he curses this thing. And it's cursed not because it wasn't bearing fruit, but it's making a show of a life that promised fruit but delivered nothing. You hear what's being said here in Matthew. And what Jesus intended to demonstrate to those who are listening to him is that you can be as religious as you want... But in fact, spiritually, you'll be barren or cursed, if he could put it that way. That's harsh, is it not? This is where Jesus is going. Then what, what did the people do? The, the, the religious mafia, the Jewish mafia, so to speak, what do they do? They, they, uh, they challenge Jesus' authority. And he, he answers them, and, and Jordan explained on that. And then he tells two parables. Again, Jordan talked about one, the parable of the two sons. And then there's the parable, of which is my focus today. It's called the parable of the tenants. Um, Now, again, it's called that by the people who have translated our scriptures and they put little titles in there. But uh, we identify it as called the parable of tenants. And we've learned in this series that Jesus spoke in parables for a reason. So that those who weren't really listening from their hearts would miss the meaning of his words. So listening, I believe, we know it's a critical life skill, right? We know that. And all parents said, oh, please help me, (laughs) right? You know, sometimes my wife actually complains when we're in the car that I don't listen to her. I don't know if anybody else has that problem. The other day, we're just driving around as we usually do, and all of a sudden, I feel her touch my arm. She says to me, are you paying attention i don't feel like you're listening and i thought well you know that's a real awkward way to start a conversation but you know <laughs> thank you thank you very much it's the story of my life anyway jesus opens with this parable and you can go to matthew chapter 21 you can pick it up with me i think it's verse uh 33 he opens with this parable and he says listen listen as a matter of fact, he adds to it. He says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a wine press into it. He built a watchtower. In other words, he set this place up for success. That's exactly what this guy was doing. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit, his rent, could have been grapes, could have been wine. We're not quite sure, but it was there. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one. They killed another. They stoned a third. Then he sent the other servants to them more than the first time. So more than three, obviously. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come. Let's kill him. Let's take his inheritance. And so they took him and they threw him out in the vineyard. They killed him. Then they sang, we are the champions. (laughs) My Bible says that right here. Right? Now they celebrated. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus asks. Now the Jewish religious leaders are there. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they said. And he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. So, when you were growing up, or as you grow up, did your parents ever have to take anything away from you because you didn't look after it? Dog, cat, some sort of animal, maybe a toy? I'm sure most of us have been like that. And if so, then we can actually understand what Jesus is talking about in this parable. It's obviously an allegory. However, each character in this story actually represents someone real. It even goes on a little bit later. We'll get to it. It says that the Jewish leaders knew that he was talking about them. Now... The immediate meaning of the parable is very simple. Let me just break it down for you. Okay, number one, the landowner refers to God. Number two, the vineyard represents the nation of Israel. All the Jews were familiar with the passage from Isaiah chapter 5 in which God planted a vineyard that symbolized Israel. They all got it. Number three, the wicked tenants represented the Jewish religious leaders. Isn't that interesting? The priests... And the rest of the people. Number four. The servant sent by the owner. Represents the Old Testament prophets. God sent dozens of prophets to Israel. We see that in the the Old Testament. He sent them to warn them of their sin. That's what he did. And uh, the Jews mistreated the prophets. And killed many of them. The fifth thing that we get out of this. Is the owner's son represents Jesus Christ very clear. And the Bible says that Christ came to that which was his own, which was meaning the Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. And then number six, the new tenants to whom the owner gave the vineyard represents the church. Now, the parable represents our broken relationship with God and his attempt, God's attempt to repair it. And, and mankind's, humankind's rejection of his attempts. And so, in spite of our continual rejection of him, God never gives up on us. Isn't that great? His love for us never diminishes. And so there are four foundational teachings here about the character of God. Number one, God is that landowner. Right? And like the owner in the parable, God is the creator. He owns all of us planet earth. He owns all of planet earth and beyond. We've taught this numerous times. The psalm says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 24, 1. The tenants didn't own the vineyard. They didn't. The owner placed them there, expecting them to uh, grow and receive a harvest of sorts. He didn't demand that he gets all the grapes. He just wanted a portion of that at harvest time. But the tenants rejected the owner's uh, request and acted as if they owned the vineyard. This is very easy to see this. The essence of our sin in the comparison is that is declaring our independence from the Creator. This is what the tenants are doing. This is what we do. We refuse to acknowledge God's ownership of this world. And we reject any claim on His life. Our life, sorry. The essence of sin is really saying, look at God, I don't need you. I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I'm the one in charge. But really, when you think of it, we don't own anything. We just manage stuff. We just manage a part of God's creation. And sometimes we actually do the same thing that these tenants did. We start imagining that we actually own the vineyard. You know, adults, we laugh when a two year old grabs a toy and says, It's mine. Because we know very well that uh, they're not capable of buying it or even making the toy. But, you know, even though they claim, it, it's mine. You know, we gave it to them. You know, I, with that simple illustration, I wonder how our Heavenly Father feels when we walk into our house and we say, it's mine. We get into our car and we say, it's mine. We look at our bank account and some of us go, I wish it was mine. <laughs> right? But we have to remember that every good thing comes from our Father. And we're all managers and stewards of this. Imagine that you're the landlord who owns an apartment. Imagine that you send one, and some of you, this is a real thing. You send one of your employees to collect the rent, and instead of paying the rent, the renter beats up your worker, and he says, that apartment is mine. You know, I'm not paying a dime. That may be the way that God feels when we sometimes claim ownership of what is really his. Interesting comparison, is it not? God is also Patient. The owner of the vineyard sent a message to collect what was due him. But the tenants, of course, what they do? They beat him up and they kicked him out. Now, if this had been an episode of Law and Order, I don't know about you, but I like Law and Order. I still watch all the reruns. The owner would have called the cops. There would have been a bunch of uh, arrest warrants issued. And you can see the Jewish police would have probably rode up on their camels, right? With their souped-up camels, their blue lanterns flickering like crazy. But this owner simply sent another servant, another employee, They killed him. He sent another one. They stoned him. And what do we learn about God in this story? We see that God is patient and relentless with us. The landowner is patient and relentless. Sends many servants to communicate his will. You know, this parable really you know, we can look at it and say it has nothing to do with me. But the fact of the matter is this parable has everything to do with us. This parable is about each one of us. And when you think about it, God has prepared a vineyard, so to speak, for you and I to manage. And that, that great job that you have didn't come by your talented good looks. So just putting it out there, God put you there. You know, God is the creator. He owns it all. And he is coming today to demand a return from us. This is the essence of the parable. He's not asking for you to give him 90% of what you have or even half. He's he's saying, yeah, 10% is a great start, but this is more than just money. He's not primarily interested in your money. He just wants you. He's asking for you and I to first acknowledge his ownership, his lordship over, his, uh, over our lives. Now, for many times, especially in the Western culture, we have no problem saying, you know, Jesus is my savior. We have a really hard time acknowledging him as Lord. Lord over everything. And the beauty of this parable is that he's reaching out to us in love. He has sent plenty of messengers. You have today, you have your scriptures, you have a Bible. You have, If you've been a believer for a long time, I'd venture to say that you have upwards of 10 Bibles sitting in your house that you haven't even dusted the dust off. Why? Because we have access to the Word on our smartphones. You have Christian radio. You have Christian TV. (laughs) Sorry, some of you know what that is. You have the web filled with millions of Bible studies. You have access to some of the greatest preachers available that you listen to after you hear me. I know you can't compare me to them, but you have that access. They're there. You listen to them all the time. But yet there are constant reminders for you and I that we have a date with death. And that we have to be prepared to meet our creator. For some of us, we're reminded when we read the obituaries how short life is. Yes, people do read the obituaries, just throwing it out there. I don't know, it's a sick reality, but it's true. Or when you drive by a cemetery. That's another messenger. You know, God is patient so patient with us that many times, you know, we've rejected him. Many times we reject the voice of God even a dozen times or a hundred times or a thousand times. But the interesting thing is that God is constantly sending us messengers. And today, I have to be honest, I am probably the most recent messenger your creator has sent to you this morning to lovingly reach out to you to respond to his gracious offer. Third point, God is love. Very basic. In this parable, after the owner's servants have been rejected and abused, he takes this astonishing step. He sends his son. Luke's version calls Jesus, Jesus called him the beloved son, and Marcus says, his only son. The owner's hoping that the tenants are going to respect his son. Instead, they take him and they kill him. And so the parable not only highlights the love of God, but it also reveals, when you think about it, the utter wickedness of the human heart. The tenants of the vineyard kill the owner's son in a spontaneous, not not just in a spontaneous heat of emotion. They actually made a calculated decision to do this. And they thought, hey, listen, if I just kill the son, then we can claim ownership of the vineyard. We will be the heirs because it was his only son. And so God sent his son, when you think about it, to convince me to respond to his offer. And what's God's offer? Well, He wants us to acknowledge that He's the owner of everything. God doesn't want our money. He, does, he just wants you. He just wants me. He wants to have a loving relationship with us. He just wants our attention. You know, the most famous verse, For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. That's sometimes the easiest verse to recite, but the hardest one to comprehend so Jesus asks, you know, what do we do with these tenants to the, the Jewish mafia, so to speak, the, the religious police? And they say, well, bring those wretches to a wretched end. Really, what they were doing is pronouncing their own judgment. Within 40 years of that story, that parable, the beautiful Jewish temple, the magnificent city of Jerusalem, was leveled to the ground by Vespasian At the hands of the Roman army, they just came in there and destroyed the place. That was a wretched end. And yet we know that God is love and that God is patient, that he's slow to anger, that God is quick to forgive, that his mercies endure forever. But none of those attributes cancel the fact that God is also just. And that means he's going to hand out perfect justice in the end. Romans 8:1, you know, we read and we take comfort. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As a believer, there's no condemnation. Why? Because Jesus and the forgiveness of sins, uh, as shed His blood for the forgiveness of sins over me. There is no condemnation. But I will say this: there are consequences when we continue to live in a way outside of God's will. Do you hear what I'm saying? There are consequences. When we repeatedly, when you think about it, ignore and suppress God's voice of conviction in our lives, we, our heart gets hard and we begin to build up a resistance to the voice of God. And most of us know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? It's awfully quiet. You know, how do you get from loving God, having a, a time of worship, a time of praise, to not hearing him anymore? And I wonder if the parable is saying, look, maybe they're taking, they mistook the patience of God as indifference. The landowner doesn't care. He's not doing anything. But yet when you think about it in our lives, when we ignore God, when we build up resistance, what happens? We need stronger and stronger warnings before we actually stop to listen to God. There are things that then come into our lives that make us stop. Or when the bottom, so to speak, falls out, that gets our attention. And what do we do? We go to God. But how many warnings have come up before then? And I have to say this, if we resist his voice long enough, we'll actually stop hearing his voice altogether. And if we fall into a deception that will make us believe that God is okay with how we are living, we fall into that deception because we justify the way that we live when actually he's not okay with it, but we'll justify it. And what happens is we begin to develop blind spots in our lives, so to speak. We become critical of other people, but hey, don't worry about the way I live my life, because I'm justifying. And, and many of you know of which I speak, because that's how we all are. Matthew continues, and we read, he says, Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord's done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is actually a duh moment for what's going on in this passage. This is, as Jordan said earlier, it's a quote from Psalm 118. It's one of the five uh, Hillel songs of praises that would have been sung. This whole psalm would have been sung in Jerusalem at this time of Passover. One of five of them. So the whole song was sung. It's beautiful. And it's probably going on, and I'm only presuming, and I'm just trying to do it. He's in the temple. He's teaching this. I wouldn't be surprised if there were people singing this very psalm. As he's teaching. And Jesus takes one of the key themes about this psalm. And he says, this is about me. I am the one that everybody is singing about. I will become the primary cornerstone of that building. Or if you don't really understand or can really follow this building metaphor. Let me break it down. I'm the player who got cut from the team. That now becomes the star of a brand new team, and ultimately wins the championship. That's what Jesus is saying. And he goes on, he says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people to produce its fruit. You hear what he's saying? The kingdom of God will be taken away from you. That's harsh. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables they knew he was talking about them they looked for a way to arrest him but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet he had the masses around him these leaders knew that he was speaking about him it was common knowledge that israel had this long history of abusing prophets as a matter of fact Their own history tells that story. Every Jewish boy grew up learning that uh, the prophet Jeremiah was beaten on multiple occasions, that he was thrown into a pit. He was then stoned with rocks. Just clarification, right? Um, Elijah and Amos were banished. They were forced to hide in caves. Ezekiel was murdered after a servant. Uh, Habakkuk and Zechariah were both stoned by the Jews that were living in Jerusalem. Zechariah got chased into a temple and stoned near the altar. Isaiah was cut in half. These are the Old Testament prophets, and they carried a message to the people, and this is how they were treated. These religious leaders knew their history. But here's the thing. They thought that this was something in the past, something that could never happen in their day. They were too righteous. They were too advanced. They were too smart. They were too morally upright to do that or to let that happen in their generation. And the irony, of course, was that they were about to do something even worse than what any of their forefathers ever did. And so what's the lesson for us? The Bible teaches very clearly that we are made out of the same sinful stuff that they are. (laughs) Yay! We have the same fallen heart, which means given the same circumstances, given the same pressures, we likely have, at, would likely have acted the same way they did. Isn't that hard for us to comprehend? When we hear about past generations of Christians enslaving, exploiting, or abusing others, you know, don't shake your head in some sort of self-righteous disgust and say, well, what's wrong with them, you know, way back then? Instead, we have to look at the human heart and say, hey, what's wrong with my heart? Stories of human depravity should not make us feel proud and smug, but humble and repentant. It should be breaking our hearts. You know, we are a race that routinely scorns and ignores the prophets. God is constantly sending messengers to get our attention. And we routinely use our position, our power, our privilege to exploit others for our own means. A lot of times when people grow up outside of the church, they see the full sinful capabilities of their heart on display when they first encounter the gospel. And so what happens is if they have no church background and they begin to repent and they invite Jesus to, in their lives, there's a real true repentance there. Like, it's almost like, it's like, God, I I see how bad I can get. I really need you to save me. There's an honesty. There's a transparency. And maybe for some of you, that's your story. And when they get to maybe singing those songs about grace, like amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, they can do it with enthusiasm because they've experienced how much of a wretch they can be. And so we've heard those stories. Personally, Jordan and I, when we were in the Ukraine, you hear those stories. People coming out of no, no concept, no framework of God. Framework of religion, but no framework of God. When they get saved, it's a radical transformation. But those of us who grow up in church or maybe in a Western culture where there's the, the smidgening of church and religion around us, you know, what we do is we learn to curb our behavior to a point. You know, we, we choose to stay blind to sinful potentials in our hearts. And yet that's a wickedness that is every bit as present. You know, when we look at it, our heart is essentially the same as that of the people of the past. It's the same thing. And that's true regardless of what color you are, what religion you practice, what political uh, affiliation you have. Your heart, my heart, our heart outside of Christ is fundamentally the same as that of those who exploited and abused others who killed the prophets and eventually crucified Jesus. That's how dark we are. We don't like to talk about that. But Jesus focuses on the human heart. And he basically says in this parable, this is true of every generation. Some of the unbelief that we encounter in our lives and in the lives of others is willful unbelief. You know, the tenants in the parable didn't murder the son because they were confused about who he was. They knew who he was. They just hated him. You know, the, the existence of the son challenged their ownership of the of the, uh, um, of the field. And so by pointing this out, you know, Jesus' life, the religious leaders had convinced themselves that Jesus was dangerous. We read that throughout Matthew. He, they needed to kill him. He, they had to get rid of him. But in telling the story, Jesus pulls back the veil on their hearts and shows that there's... Was a willful rejection. In the book of Romans, Paul Paul says that there's a great deal of of our behavior can only be explained in terms of a deep dynamic emotional and spiritual repression. That underneath everything else, that the thing that we really repress is a hatred of God. Hard words. Romans 8:7 says that our simple heart has in, uh, this inward hostility towards God. The mind groomed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. In other words, we are create, have this thing called sin in us when we're born. And you've got to think about what that means, is that our natural mind cannot submit go- to God. It possesses a deep hostility to the authority and to the glory of God. Your heart possesses that. And when we repent, it means now we have to recognize that and looking to God to change. We need God to change us from the inside out. And by the way, this is how you know the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes. It takes the Holy Spirit to see that sin is just not a violation of the rules, but a whole attitude of resentment towards Christ's claim of our life. Like I said, we have no problem with allowing Jesus to be Savior. We have a huge issue with allowing Him to be Lord and control of everything. And the sign of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, which I think most of us actually crave, right? Because we want to experience God. What does that mean? Do I get, you know, the hair standing up in the back of my neck? No, we want the Holy Spirit to reveal himself, to speak to us. So he begins to deal deep down inside of us. And all of a sudden, we see that it starts getting personal. And it's not just a feeling of shame, you know, I didn't keep the rules, but it begins really personal that man i'm offending my creator i'm offending my lord and what this all means for many people is that their unbelief is not a lack of evidence in the head this is not the issue it's really comes down to a heart problem and what i want you to see is that sometimes there are heart things behind unbelief not head things heart things Throughout his ministry, Jesus explained that if you had the right posture of the heart, he said, if you had the ears to hear, then the truth of, about him would be evident for everybody to see. If ears to hear, you'll be able to see what he's talking about. Many people rejected Christ outright, there's, but there's also another subtle way, more subtle way, that people reject him. And it's when a person takes Jesus as the foundation of his life. Listen to me carefully but then in practice rejects him. I'm a Christian, but then you live like the devil. You know, religion can be a very effective way of avoiding God's authority in your life in one respect. You know, you don't want to surrender to God and everything. So you come up with some sort of man-made scheme to pay him off. And for a lot of people, you know, the goal of religion is if, you know, if I can just give Jesus a timeout in my life and he doesn't speak to us, we're okay, right? You, you know, we're not trying to know God. We're not trying to walk with God. We're just trying to keep God at a distance, keep Jesus in the corner in a timeout, have Jesus light, you know, just keep it that way. Let's obey the man-made rules, but let's keep Jesus and the Holy Spirit at a distance and not really affecting how I live my life. Most rejection that we do, though, is rooted in the desire for us to have control. The servants have been hired by the owner. They're acting as if the vineyard belonged to them. Everything in us wants to pretend that we are the owner of our life, that we're not the tenant. The world constantly is reinforcing to us look at you're the owner, you are it, you know, do it your way. A lot of sin goes back to the question who owns your life? Is it yours out of which you share some with Jesus, or is it his which he is allowing you to enjoy? Who owns your life? Well, I do. No, do we really? If we're believers, do we own our life? And for many people, Jesus is like a GPS system in your car. We got a demo car, and it's, it's you know, of course, you play with it all the time, right? Because I can never afford it, so I can at least play with all the toys that are in there. You know, and, and let's, let's be honest, we decide that we want to have a happy life, and you know, sometimes Jesus is like the GPS in our car, when you think about it. And, and you know God has something to do with your life. He's going to give you some direction. And so you want to keep it there, and you want to program the direction in which you're going. So that's what we do in our car, right? God, program I want to go to this location, and we type it in, and we press go. And when you think about it, even when you have a GPS in the car, you still have the op- option to disobey the GPS. Do you know that? Have you ever disobeyed your GPS? Of course you have. And what happens? Recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. God is the owner of our life, He is not the navigation system. And yet, God's grace towards us is absolutely amazing. But it doesn't last forever. And I think that that's one of the teachings that we have to deal with. God shows his grace to us in this story in repeated ways. And the fact that he gives the vineyard for us to enjoy. He's given you and I life to enjoy. This life is to enjoy people. Sometimes Christians get in the head, oh, I can't have a good life. No, have a good life. The blessings of God, we heard it in Psalm 118. It's to enjoy. When you go out and you have your lunch, enjoy it. When you go out and see the dandelions, my neighbors keep giving me the number to green drop. I don't understand why. I would just prefer they pick them. But, you know, enjoy what's going out there. Your friends sitting next to you, that boyfriend, that girlfriend, that husband, that wife, enjoy. Life has been meant to enjoy. Go play golf. Go cheer the rafters. Do whatever you need to do. Enjoy. That's what God has done for us. He gives us the vineyard to enjoy. Life and the pleasures go with it. They are a gift from God, people. Secondly, though, the the repeated patient warnings, though, He is always trying to get our attention. In this story, He doesn't just send one, this is His grace. Not one chance to repent, but he sends chance after chance after chance. And the same is true for you and me. He sends us repeated warnings when we start straying off courts, recalculating, recalculating. It could be through a message like this. So maybe God's trying to get your attention this morning. It could also be through other people, other things, but he's constantly sending messages to us. Maybe it's the process of aging. Hallelujah. Right? Right? Aging can be dis- depressing, it can be, but in one sense, it's God's gracious reminder that we don't last forever and everything that we have is borrowed. We're a tenant, not the owner in this life. The fragility of life is the messenger. That we are not the owner of this thing. C.S. Lewis said unfulfilled longings were a sign that we are the tenants and not the owner. and every pleasure, the longing for it was better than actually obtaining it. He put it this way. He said, it's like my life has been spent chasing after the scent of a flower I've been, never been able to find. He smells it but can't find it. The echo of a tune my soul longs to hear but doesn't know where the original is coming from. I find in my desires, which nothing in this world will satisfy. The only explanation is, is that I was created for another world. It's bigger than us unfulfilled longings are a messenger that we're not the master we're not the owner of what we have again you're in a church community today god has been after you life is a messenger constantly coming at you and you're being reminded look you're not in charge you're not the owner you are a tenant and so god shows his mercy by allowing you to tend the land that we call life but he's constantly sending us warnings that we need to pay attention to. The ultimate way of showing mercy, of course, by sending his son, Jesus. And like I said, you, you, sometimes we stand a little dumbfounded uh, by the mercy of God that he's shown to the tenants. You know, they killed the messengers. He's, why would he send his son? You know, would, would anybody else ever show that kind of mercy in that kind of situation? You know, sometimes when you think about it, Christians, we complain about the, the harshness of God's, God's judgment. Or we don't, you know, the, the, some of the, the error theology as well, you know, there is no judgment. Yeah, I said it. Deal with it. Read the Bible. There's judgment. You know, and we act as if we're in charge. And that if I was in charge, I would be more merciful than God. But whenever we put God's mercy and man's mercy in contrast to one another, guess who wins? God. You've got to think about how would you react if the tenant stole your vineyard. In the story of Hosea, the Old Testament prophet. We actually get scandalized, if I can use that word, when God tells Hosea to go back and buy his wife, who had just finished committing adultery on him repeatedly, eventually selling herself into the sex trade industry. God says to Hosea, after she betrayed you you, and utterly humiliated you, you know, I want you to go back and buy, buy her back and just love her. And we look at that story, we go, that doesn't even make sense. That's not even reasonable. And God says, do it because that's what I'm doing to you. A very clear word picture. The story of Jonah, again, scandalized. That God tells Jonah to go, go and preach. Many times we don't even know the story of Jonah, right? Oh, it's a guy and a whale and some, you know, whatever. No, 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 no. Go and preach to the people. Understand the history behind it. The people that have captured, enslaved, tortured, and abused your family. Go and preach to them. because that's what I'm doing and you know the reason we think that of ourselves that we're more merciful than God is because we actually don't perceive the depth of the evil that we have done God's mercy reveals in stories like this is absolutely staggering people God sent his son knowing full well what we would do to him why because scripture says first that he was demonstrating his love for us in Romans He was putting it on display in a way that we could never doubt, in a way that we could never forget. And we see that he was willing to make himself vulnerable and put himself in harm's way for no other reason than just simply to rescue you and me. And secondly, he was enabling us to trust him by showing his willingness to identify with us. He had no personal vested interest in becoming one of us other than to lead us to safety. That's why Jesus came from heaven down into the form of man. So in becoming a man, he demonstrated his love for us. He showed us that we could trust him. And third, his death became the means in which he would save us. Our murder of him, so to speak, becomes the means of our forgiveness. He died for our sin, paying the penalty for our place. And there's only two ways that you pay for your sin, the guilty, right? That you can suffer for it eternally, or he, the righteous, can suffer in your place. His death also released the power that changed us. And I think that's the irony of the gospel. that This murder that came from the hatred that we had towards God became the means by which God destroyed the hatred in our hearts. His willingness to serve us and to suffer for us breaks the stronghold that self-centeredness and self-will has on our hearts. And that's all of us. What is the Spirit talking about you to deal with this morning? Each and every one of us, He's speaking to us. Because if each and every one of us, there's something going on that's out of alignment with Him, and He's sending a messenger saying, look, this is what you need to line up on. What is God talking to you about this morning? Rhetorical question, please don't yell it out. And now you have a choice. And I think this is where God's grace is amazing, but it won't last forever. You choose to let his death compel you to repent, to build your life on him, or you choose, because that's how he is, to ignore him and let him crush you, so to speak, as the passage said. Hard words. God in his mercy has sent messenger after messenger to remind us that we're not owners. Finally, he sends you Jesus. The mercy is absolutely amazing. But in this parable, Jesus also shows that it's not going to last forever. And if you won't listen to the son, who are you going to listen to? And don't flatter yourself that God couldn't get along without you. You know, in that last statement, Jesus told the Jewish leaders something that they absolutely did not believe. And they thought, there's no way that this is going to happen, man. We're God's people. We're the chosen one. You know, what other faithful group like us does God have? We are it. We got it together. In another place, they even told themselves that, you know, God would never destroy us because they were the sons of Abraham and they were his only people. But Jesus responded, he said, God can raise up sons and daughters of Abraham from the stones. And sure enough, that's what happened. 70 AD, as I said, Vespasian comes in and he massacred the citizens of Jerusalem. He tore down the temple. Not one stone was left on top of each other. That's why it is the way it is today. At that point in time, the spiritual leadership was passed over to the apostles who were completely disconnected from the religious establishment. Why? Because they spent the majority of their ministries taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul, yet he gives the same warning to us. He says, don't take your place for granted either, because we can get smug in our vineyards, can we not? Romans 11 says, they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. And he warns, he says, don't be arrogant. But tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. We wouldn't be the first people in history that God has discarded and started over again. We see that in Scripture. Are we walking in a way that's worthy of the grace that God has given us people? If you identify yourself as a believer, how are you walking today? Paul frequently admonishes the churches. He's constantly calling to us, "I urge you therefore, he tells us, walk worthy of the calling that you've received." And Jesus, "You have a calling. As a believer, you have a calling by Jesus. You and I are to walk worthy. What is that going to look like in your home? What does that look like in your friendships? What does that look like in your relationships, whether you're dating or whether you're married? What does it look like in your work relationships? You are called to walk worthy. Where is the Holy Spirit speaking to you now? Are you walking in that way that god is asking you to walk does your worship demonstrate that does your giving reflect the gratitude of god that god showed you of all people does your grace do you have grace for other people what's your responsibility with what god has entrusted for you what about your quest of holiness is there a price for that are you in that does that even make sense to you what is holiness what's your commitment to the gospel to take it to others so that they can even have a chance to believe, even a chance to hear. There's a team of seven people. Let me just digress. team of seven people going to the Ukraine at the end of June. We're all teaching English at a camp, a church camp. But even though it's a church-run camp, about 80% of those students are are non-believers. We're going to be teaching them English using the Bible, using Bible characters and principles, uh, along with other uh, special interaction with games and things like that, so that it helps them learn English but it also helps them learn about Jesus. They know what kind of camp they're coming to. And yet the host just recently asked us, he said, look at, you know, would you, we know you're coming, we know you're sacrificing to come, but would you consider sponsoring some kids for camp? To which we said, yeah, we would. The cost is roughly $150 per camper. And I would love for us as Soul Sanctuary to simply sponsor 10 kids. Is that asking too much? 10 kids. Some of these campers will be coming from the orphanages that they want to be dealing with. Remember, we just took over 20,000 US dollars to give them to buy a facility to be a transition house for orphans. Do you want an opportunity to help make a difference in a young person's life? Even by your general giving, you see our worship band, our youth band. You know, if you go on a Friday night and you go into the preschool room, and you stand in the preschool room on a Friday night and you hear the worship team going on up and down, and you look at the ceiling, you'll see the ceiling doing this. Don't worry, it's structurally made for that. It's pretty cool. But we pour into our kids here too. We want to know that our youth have a a future in the generation to come. That future is based on Jesus. We pour it into our children's ministry. Can we do it overseas? And I want to encourage you to make a decision to give something. I don't care if it's $5, but write on, on an envelope and write Ukraine camp on your envelope. Put it in the joy basket. Help us just take 10 kids. 10 kids that would never have the opportunity to go. Because here in our country, we have enjoyed the access to the gospel like no other people in history. There's no guarantee. I have to say this because of the human heart. There's no guarantee that it's going to continue. God's promises are guaranteed. And he's going to do mighty things in this world. But we must never be so presumptuous as to think that God can only do mighty things through us. Because we are his people. If we don't walk forward in humility. He will pour out his powerful spirit somewhere else. And I don't know about you. But I want us to experience his spirit. Not just on a Sunday when we gather. I want to see that more, more and more. But I want to see people's lives change. So here's two questions. Have you received them? You know, we didn't sing it today, but there's a song that we do sing called Beautiful Name. And he says, he didn't want heaven without us, so he brought heaven down. My sin was great, but your love was greater. What could separate us now? And that's so true. When you think about it, God doesn't want heaven without you or me. But if we don't listen to that, what else can he do? He's given us chance after chance after chance. If you and I reject the Son, he'll have no choice but to grant you your wish. I just got to say it how it is. That's what this parable is talking about. God has a love language. Now... I don't know if you know what love languages are. Maybe you've read the book or been to counseling or been in a marriage seminar that tells us that there are five love languages that we have in relating with each other. The first one is the words of affirmation, right? Verbal compliments, words of appreciation. These are powerful communications of love to our spouse. The second one is quality time. This means giving somebody your undivided attention. I don't mean sitting on the couch and watching TV together, Netflix and chill. If you know what I'm saying, what I mean is sitting on the couch with the TV off, right? Looking at each other and talking. That's a unique thing. Putting away the devices, giving each other your undivided attention. That could even mean going for a walk or just going out for dinner and talking. But there's also receiving gifts and for your information. You have to be thinking of somebody in order to give them a gift. The gift itself is just a symbol of the thought that you're thinking of. It doesn't matter whether it costs money or if you pulled up dandelions. What is important is that you thought of that person and expressed that thought in securing and giving the gift as the expression of love. And then there's the acts of service. This is mine. You do things for your spouse that you would like that. You know, that you know is going to make them happy, or you do it for your family or other people. You seek to pleasure to serve them, you express your love for them by simply just doing things for them. And then there's physical touch, my personal favorite. This also, though, is a powerful vehicle for communication, holding hands, right? Hugging, kissing. Um, But even the off-glance, never mind sexual intercourse, these are all ways of communicating emotional love to one's spouse. But may I present to you that God's love language is obedience. He had a very clear expectation of his people in the Old Testament. Just like the landowner, he sets us up even now for success, so to speak. And when I look at it, God had the same expectations of us today as they did of Israel. When you look at the Old Testament, we see that God's love language uh, uh, of uh, Israel is expect is made crystal clear. Sorry. He just simply says, look, it, I, all I'm asking you to do is obey me. And he made it clear, honor me as God. I think we call them the Ten Commandments, right? But honor me as God. Make me the only one in your life. Sort of don't pollute me or add other gods in this relationship. Hey, look, just obey my laws. That was, you know, start with the Big Ten. That's usually the easiest way. And then he adds, and share them with the rest of the world. You know, those laws weren't restrictions. they were hedges of protection around this nation of people. However, if you stepped outside of that, God wouldn't bless them. He didn't really ask for much. I still, he believe, I still believe he operates in the same way. He's just asking us to obey. So where do, you, where, do you, where do you and I fit in this story? The church is the new tenant. And realizing the grace of God is a great gift to us. So are you walking in a way that's worthy of that response? Are you being a good steward of the vineyard that God has blessed you with? Are you being a steward of the vineyard where God has specifically placed you? Do you constantly remember that you don't own anything, that he owns it all, that he has a right to it all? And if not, who's the messenger and what's the message that's coming to your heart today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. Your word's a privilege that we can stand here with freedom and expound on it. But sometimes we just get too familiar. Sometimes we need to be stunned again by its power, by its clarity, and by your glory. I thank you that you'd open our eyes to understand the truth. What a gift, an unspeakable gift, incalculable gift that we have. Thank you that you've allowed us to love Christ with and just the best we can. I pray that you will work in our hearts today, that you will shine light in the darkness. God, it was you who said, let there be light. My prayer is that you would step into the hearts of people and shine the glorious light of your own person. So that others can see and believe and be delivered from the judgment that's around them. This is my prayer, God. In Christ's name, I commit this to you. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving the blessing did likewise. Stand with me and let me give you a blessing before you go. The youth band will wash you out with a song, but here it is. The Spirit of God is upon you and he has anointed you, soul sanctuary. So please remember as you leave that you are the salt of the earth and you bring light to the world. Yes, you bring light to the world. You are not too young or too old. You are not too rich or too needy to bring the good news to the impoverished, to give a hand to the brokenhearted, and to live out freedom and pardon through the gifts that you were freely given by him. So remember this week to pack peace into your toolbox, hope into your briefcase, love into your lunchbox, and may integrity, honesty, and joy be your designer where of choice. Are you tracking with me? So don't be frightened because you are never alone. The God whose image you are made will walk with you, will guide you today, tomorrow, and every day. Now go and live the church. Be blessed. We'll see you next week.